When the sun she rises early in the morning, I like to hear them small birds singing merrily upon their land. And to ride for the life of a country kid, and to ramble in the new mown hay. Hello. And welcome to the Kitty Pool Podcast, where we dip and dangle our toes into the sparkly waters of kids' media. We talk to writers, authors, actors, researchers, musicians, anyone who has their hand in making magic for the newest generation of human beings. We want to know what is being made for kids, who is making it, why they're making it, and what sets their soul on fire. What are they making for breakfast? What do they do when everything around them goes still? It's just a relaxing day at the pool among friends. I'm your host, Carly Shiraki, and today we welcome our first musician to the pool, Dan Zanes. He has been making music his entire life. His career began in the 80s with his rock band, The Del Fuegos, and after 10 years on that scene, he switched gears and started making tunes for kids and families. 16 years and 15 albums later, boom, here we are. He's recorded tons of your favorite classic folk songs, and he's given you the gift of bouncy originals, too. He's collaborated with Elizabeth Mitchell, Lou Reed, Cheryl Crow, Andrew Bird, Suzanne Vega, Matthew Broderick, Carol Channing, Philip Glass, The Blind Boys of Alabama. He won a Grammy Award in 2007 for his album, Catch That Train. He's appeared on Playhouse Disney, Sesame Street, and even Sprout's Sunny Side Up, which is where I met him for the first time a few years ago. I became an instant fan of Dan, a Dan fan. I caught his holiday sing-along here in New York City, and I was moved by the total and complete inclusivity of the thing, tunes from around the world, lyric sheets. He invited his pals, young and old, to join him on stage for real. A seven-year-old with a violin hopped up beside you at one point. (laughs) When Dan Zanes throws a party, everybody's invited. So we thought it was about time to invite him to our little party right here. Dan Zanes, welcome to the kiddie pool. Thank you, Carly. It's nice to see you. It's nice to be here. Appreciate the invitation. Excellent. I have a lot of questions for you about a lot of things, but um, (laughs) can we begin with some of your journey into music in general? Yeah. Yeah, of course. That's easy because I've been thinking about that a lot. When I was eight, seven or eight, I got a library card. I lived in New Hampshire and I went down to the library and I went to the basement where they had records and I told the librarian that I was interested in guitar and she told me to go look in the folk section and I went and I flipped through the records and I saw a guy handsome man with a 12 string guitar and a bow tie and it was Lead Belly that's what got me going that's what hooked you yeah okay well regarding the Lead Belly inspiration I was doing my research and there's a thing that you wrote that I just thought was so beautiful and and I'm wondering if I could have you read it sure that'd be okay this is what I wrote Folkways records were my multicultural education in a stifling Eurocentric world. Very true. They were educational for me in the way that life is educational. Mysterious, limitless, comforting, joyous, and beckoning. They invited me to walk out into the fray and participate. These records sang to me of the deepest pitfalls and best possibilities. They told me in a thousand roundabout ways that something important was missing from the textbooks that we joylessly chewed our way through in grade school. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's right. Joylessly chewed our way through those textbooks is very accurate. <laughs> <laughs> so what does this mean for you regarding the music you make in general and then specifically for the Lead Belly project? And maybe could you talk a little bit about the project just to let everybody know what's up with that? Yeah. Well, as I said, Lead Belly was my main man then. And I think, to me, the godfather of modern-day children's music or family music. Hmm. I really would make a strong case for that. You know, Ella Jenkins is in a category of her own, I think, and deserves to be celebrated anytime people talk about children's music. But I think this idea of this sort of family music that a lot of us strive to make, this shared experience for young people and old people together, I think Lead Belly really set the template for that. The first record that he made for Folkways was a record of children's play party songs. And, um, you know, when I started Festival 5 Records, if I had found what I was looking for in the Tower Records when I went in there, you know, I never would have done any of this. And I just wanted the updated version of Folkways Records. So I wanted a mix of old and new songs from a variety of places, and I wanted them to sound like they're made in a kitchen or by a waiting pool or, you know, where someplace that wasn't a studio, you know, in some environment that had some life to it. And um, that's what Lead Belly's music was to me. And it was music that was mysterious and we could all find our way in regardless of how old we were. And it was deeply rooted in a variety of traditions. So that told me when I listened to that music and I could hear what he was singing about, it didn't connect to the stuff that we were learning in school. It told me that there was something essential missing from what we were learning. And the word Eurocentric didn't come to me till much, much <laughs> later. But then when I heard the word and I understood the concept a little bit more and I realized our educational system was designed to make us sort of see the world in a very particular way. And it was designed to make us see the world in a way that didn't particularly include people like Lead Belly. So, you know, no wonder it was joyless. <laughs> it was so narrow and so limited. But these records gave me the idea that there was so much more out there. So it made me a little bit unhappy with school as it was, but it also made me really want to know more about the world mm. and its people. You mentioned this moment in Tower Records looking for music and then not finding the thing you were looking for, and that's part of your origin story in terms of getting into making kids' music. You couldn't find the thing you were looking for, so you made it yourself. It's like a little piece of lore, Dan Zane's <laughs> lore. What do you find the difference to be between being in the studio and shaping that raw sound that you described and then throwing a live party, which I would describe your show? Is this like a party? What are the differences between recording and performing live for this kind of music? Well, we want the end of the recording to feel like a party, but recording is an unnatural process unless you're recording everything live, which we don't necessarily, but we want it to feel like that in the end. My mother is a photographer, and she had a mentor, a German photographer named Lada Jacobi, who would set up these elaborate photos, you know, take hours to set up a shot. And when you would see the end result, it would look like people crossing the street on an average day, for example. So it would look like a spontaneous moment in time, but it was something that she would take hours to set up. And her way of describing that was art requires artifice. And that's kind of how I feel about recording. We want it to feel like a party, but it, sometimes we have to work to create that feeling. But what we're working towards is, you know, when I went into Tower Records, and I didn't find 
what I was looking for. I decided I would make some recordings. My big dream was that I would make cassettes for families that I knew within a five-block radius of my house. That was the beginning and the end of my idea because I was making a solo record at the time. And the solo record came out. Nobody cared about it. And um, everybody was interested in getting more copies of this cassette tape that I had made of my all-ages music. So, you know, I felt like I was being directed in another direction. But the idea was always we would make things that would inspire people to make their own music. In other words, buy the CD, that would be great, but really then turn it off and make your own music. So if it sounds like people in a room playing together and having a good time with each other, that's exactly what we want because I want particularly young people to hear these things and feel the way I felt when I listened to Lead Belly, which is I wanted to do it myself. I just had this feeling that that's something that I could do. Never as well as Lead Belly, but I could do that. And I want to I wanna be able to tell stories like that, you know, with a guitar. And so if you're listening to our records and you're hearing things in a variety of languages or you're hearing people from a variety of backgrounds or a variety of ages, that's exactly what we're putting across is that everybody's invited to the party. How do you find your collaborators, both the people that you make your recordings with that make up Dan Zanes and Friends, and the people that show up with you live on the road in the various cities that you perform in? It's a super organic process. It's mm. like anything. I think we kind of set our intentions <laughs> that we want a circle of interesting people around us and people come into our lives. I mean, that's basically it, <laughs> you know, just keeping the antennae up and seeing who's around and and asking people about themselves, you know, and just being open. The holiday show that you mentioned, the mm -hmm. seven-year-old who's now nine, he's been playing with us for years. He's kind of a part of the band, and he's been coming to our shows since he was in utero. <laughs> and through coming to the shows, he decided to start playing, and then his mother emailed me one day and asked if he could play on a song at a show, and I said, of course, and He's been coming ever since, so I don't know, maybe four or five years now he's been, <laughs> he's been coming. That's unbelievable. Yeah, and it's great. And you know what the thing that's so cool about it is that it means so much more to, you know, at the end of the day, kids at the show walk away and can easily forget about Dan Zanes, but it's going to be hard for them to forget about someone their age who is up on stage as a part of the band playing three different instruments. <laughs> Absolutely. It's beautiful, you know, so my job isn't necessarily to be the great Dan Zanes. It's really just to create space for that stuff, you know, to happen. And that's way beyond what I could have originally imagined for myself. You know, I thought it was really about getting as much of the spotlight as possible. Mm. And, but now I think it's about sharing as much of the spotlight as possible. And that in turn makes me feel better. I love that. That's so beautiful. So you're talking about organic collaborations and just finding your way to people. So how do you negotiate that with the business and industry? Like I know there have been times in your career where you have collaborated with television networks and what has that experience been like for somebody that sort of has a soul that maybe conflicts with some of that? Yeah, good question. I think that, you know, we were always trying to be clear about what the end result is and if being in the corporate side of it, you know, we did a pilot for Disney, for Playhouse Disney. And in the part of that was that we made four videos and they showed the videos for two years while we developed a pilot. It was really a great deal. 
and I was thinking, I'm just using Disney as an example because that's sort of the biggest, most corporate thing that we've done. But for us, you know, we wanted to reach people and we felt like we had something good and we knew that we could make good videos and we believed in their creative team and rightfully so. And it, you know, it really helped us, you know, it helped people come to shows, it helped people know about us. So it's kind of an easy call, you know, just for us, it was just being clear on what's the end result. If the goal had really been just to make a ton of money and take the money and run, then I think it probably all would have fallen apart and it, it wouldn't have worked out so well. But the goal was really to just sort of broaden what we were doing. And at the time, I mean, it's never been about money and now there's less of it than ever, you know? So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that people make, I know you're a rich um, oh. <laughs> TV personality, but the rest of us are. <laughs> Not even. We're sitting in a I'm very tiny pool. <laughs> studio in Brooklyn. <laughs> but um, that's what I love about family music and things that people do for young audiences. It's very, very rare to run into people who are doing this for the money. And if they were doing it for the money, then, I mean, kind of say, well, God bless everybody. People do this for reasons that are pretty much from the heart, I think. And I love that because I was in rock and roll, you know, and that's different. For me, that was a big ego trip from beginning to end. You know, it was maybe not so much in the beginning, but certainly at the end. And that's hard to sustain. You know, it's a hard reason to do anything. Did you consciously let go of that ego thing? Life kind of beat me down. Mm. <laughs> That's really what it was. You know, beat me down into a good place. So I was in a rock band for 10 years, and then I came out of it, and I felt like when it all ended, I felt like I wasn't, I probably wouldn't live to be 30, you know? Mm. So I was 27, and I felt like an old man. And, you know, lifestyle stuff had really, really taken its toll. And I had no connection to music at all. And uh, so made a lot of lifestyle changes and then started listening to music and stepped away from rock and roll and started listening to music, you know, bluegrass music, um, gospel music, Jamaican dance hall music, music that had a direct and serious connection to the audience and involved a lot of audience participation and was very communal and social. And I just thought, if I can't do music that connects directly to people, that's really social and has a real intent for being something positive in the world, if I can't do that, then there's no point. Because, like I said, it was just such an ego trip and such a mess, you know, and mm -hmm. filled with things like, you know, professional jealousy. I mean, that stuff is poison. But that's where I was. So... I learned so much. Going through all that was great for me because I learned a lot about what not to do. <laughs> so when I started doing this, it was really, like I said, just for the neighbors in the neighborhood. And then I saw that I could actually be a useful member of society. And I wasn't sure that I would ever have that opportunity with music. So I saw the opportunity and tried to run with it because I, I never had a plan B. You know, mm. I don't have any other skills. <laughs> I love the idea of being more useful. We should all try and be useful. What else are we here for? <laughs> so these all ages, all people parties that you throw, lately I've been seeing on your Facebook that your shows have been sensory friendly. What does that mean? I mean, I think I have an understanding of what it means, but like, how did you come to that being a priority lately? Yeah. Oh, man, it's the most unbelievable thing to have experienced. So a little over a year ago, I got a call to go play a show in Lancaster, Pennsylvania at the Ware Center. I had started playing shows on my own in addition to with the band. 
in that it was sensory friendly. And they sent me some materials and it was kind of based on these guidelines that the Kennedy Center set up. And I really, I didn't pay that much attention. And then I got down there. So basically, in a nutshell, what sensory friendly is, is it's a way of presenting a show that makes it more comfortable for kids with special needs. Mm. Not necessarily kids on the spectrum, but that would include a lot of kids on the autism spectrum. So, but the thing about it is, my show didn't really change. Huh. I kind of did the same thing I always do. Whoa. Yeah. So they keep house lights at half. That's no big deal. Sound is moderate. That's no big deal because we do that anyway. They have a chill-out space, so if kids feel overstimulated and want to leave the auditorium or the theater and watch it on a video screen in another room, they can go do it. They let kids come in early if they want to see the space. But it's also for neurotypical kids. So it's not specifically designed for kids with special needs, but it sort of widens who can feel comfortable in the setting. And this is one of the most important things about it is that the language advertising the show indicates that all behaviors and reactions to the music and to the show are welcomed, accepted, celebrated. So families who have kids with special needs know that however their kids react to the music, it might be standing up and being vocal in a quiet part of the song. It's fine. All that's fine. And that's very much in keeping with my shows anyway. So I was seeing families coming to the show feeling comfortable and welcome and knowing that the show was presented with their kids in mind. And it wasn't that different from anything I'd done. So I just started thinking, why aren't we all doing this? So I started a conversation with the people at the Kennedy Center who sort of have been at the forefront of this. Actually just met with them a couple weeks ago. So for the last year, we've been talking and... I've started playing a lot of shows with a woman named Claudia Eliaza, who's a Haitian-American jazz singer and music therapist. We work really well as a duo, so we're doing a lot of stuff now together. So we're talking to the Kennedy Center about something that we can develop. But basically, this is what's going to happen. In a couple years' time, it's a matter of knowing what it is. It's not a matter of having to change anything. Mm -hmm. It's going to get to a point. The tipping point will be, if you're presenting a show that's not sensory friendly, you're going to look like a jackass. <laughs> that's kind of where it's going to end up in the near future because there's no reason for any of us not to be doing sensory friendly programming. The only reason anyone isn't doing it is because they don't know about it. Yeah. So it's really just about information. So it's the most beautiful win-win situation available to us now, I think, as far as family programming. And it's really a win-win-win because... The families that don't generally feel comfortable going to the typical shows are explicitly welcomed. And the neurotypical families benefit because then we're all sharing the same space and we get to know each other in this way. And we get to know more about how we all react to music and just how we react to life in general. So it's great for the neurotypical families too. And it's great for the venues because they get more people coming in the door. So everybody benefits. There's absolutely no downside anywhere. So that's cool. why I'm doing it. <laughs> I love that. That's so cool. And Isn't it, it great? Yeah. And it's totally what you just said, that it's about being informed and sometimes takes time for people to catch on and to understand something. But then as soon as it's right in front of you, it's like, oh, cool. I couldn't imagine a thing going any other way than this. Yeah. You know, and I love being around 
kids on the spectrum. I've always gotten a lot of emails from families with kids with autism, and it's it's great to know the different ways that we experience music. You know, I've seen some incredible dancing and just incredible, vibrant reactions to music mm. from kids on the autism spectrum. So as far as a performer, to look out and see a wider variety of reactions, that's exciting. Yeah. And I think folk music in particular is so special because of how simple it is that you can join in right away with even just catching the beat or the repetition of the words. And there's a place to fit in with a harmony or like sometimes even if I know this from singing with some of my siblings, any note will work here. So you don't have to be a person that can sing well. (laughs) Whatever just came out of your mouth actually fits. How do you come to your original music and original tunes? What's Um, that process like? Just kind of sitting down to write a tune, you know? <laughs> I um, That's really it. I developed a early childhood music education program for the conservatory around the corner oh. here. It's not running anymore, but I learned a lot doing it. And one of the things I learned was that I was kind of complicating everything hmm. and that I could be writing songs while I'm walking down the street. I really don't need my guitar. I like my guitar, but I don't need it. I can write songs without it, just walking and running things through in my head. So... The songwriting now has sort of gotten simpler and better. and Unless I'm making a record or something, I don't really sit down to do it. Ah, so you don't ever just like write a song for you, not for the kids, but just for Dan? Oh, I do that all the time. Oh, yeah? yeah. What's that like? That's fun. Yeah, that's fun. I think I'm just, I'm sort of a, I think a 50s crooner stuck in a 21st century body. <laughs> <laughs> just like to, you know, sit and sing love songs all day. That's kind of what I have to offer. <laughs> wow. Would you ever like make an album of 50s love songs? Yeah, I think I would if I felt like there was any need for it out in the world. <laughs> if, if you build it, they will come. I mean, <laughs> but that's my main interest. <laughs> I love that. What do you say to somebody that's at the beginning of their music journey? whether it's a person who wants to figure out how to write songs or a person that's got all these songs that they wrote and they don't know what to do with them. What do you say to the wide-eyed youths or the everybody of all ages with wide eyes? Yeah, I think that's the dream right there for all of us to be making music. That's a good thing. That's what we wanted. That's what it seemed like electronic media was going to take away from us, that desire to play music and make our own music. So yes, say go for it. Another thing that I would say is look around, see who's around, see what people are doing and see where some potential collaborators might be. And hey, if the collaborators are coming from someplace that may not be familiar to you, well, then that's really good too. You know, I think that's the thing that was so important for me was recognizing that there were so many people around, you know, who didn't look like me, who didn't grow up the way I grew up, who maybe didn't even speak English as a first language. Whatever the case may be, there are just so many people around and there are so many possibilities for collaboration. And in those collaborations, I also don't have to always be in charge. Hmm. I can be the student. I can be the listener. That's the thing that I think also can make this interesting as we become more musical. You know, where are the possibilities for interacting with other people? And that's kind of what I see as the potential for it all, is maybe that, you know, except for Sesame Street, when I was growing up, you know, I looked around and I saw white people everywhere. I'm telling you, that's why Folkways was such a big inspiration for me, because it took me outside of that sort of monoculture that I was experiencing. And 
to see a broader range of possibilities was what can make this exciting. Sometimes, you know, I think that's my vision for family music or children's music is just that it becomes more of a multicultural experience right now. It's more of a Eurocentric, more Anglo experience. And sometimes it's not that I learn a wide variety of songs from around the world. It's just that I share the stage with people from other backgrounds. And I think that's, I mean, I love my band. I love my band. It's a multiracial group of men and women. So it's easier for young people to look on the stage and identify with what's going on, I think, than it might be if it was me and four other white dudes, mm -hmm. you know? So mm -hmm. I love that, but that's better for me. I mean, just as a starting point, the music is better, the experience is better, you know, all that stuff is better as a result. So. I mean, I don't know what anybody should do. <laughs> I don't know what anybody should do. I know what works for me. And what worked for me was to break out of what was sort of natural, which is to gravitate towards four white dudes. Yeah. The more I broke out of that, the better everything got. Well, figuring out what works for you might be the thing that people should do. <laughs> I like the way you put it. Well, that's what it is. <laughs> but, but being conscious of your whiteness and the group of people that you're putting on stage, the specificity of that intention, did mm. that hit you at a certain point or was it from growing up with the lead belly stuff? Like, is there a moment in time that like suddenly you became conscious of a mission statement? Yeah, I can tell you exactly what it was. When I started doing this, I called my friend Mike Feldstein up in Boston. He's my oldest friend. Hmm. And he was doing what was called anti-bias work with a woman named Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, who wrote the book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? I didn't know anything about any of this, and I didn't know what anti-bias work was. I knew it didn't apply to me because I'm not racist or whatever. I didn't know anything. And so I was telling him about this show that we had done at PS29, I said, oh, you know, it's a beautiful mix of kids, black kids, Latino kids, Arabic kids, white kids, Asian kids. And we played a multicultural mix of songs to celebrate the diversity of Brooklyn and this and that. And he said, oh, great, great, great. And who are you playing with? And I said, oh, you know, some guys that I knew from around. And he said, oh, were they white guys? And I said, yeah, you know. I mean, I've been in a rock band. That's all I knew. That was all I knew. And I said, yeah. And he said, this is an adult show, right? So mm -hmm. Yeah, this is for this, adults. This is the first guy that I'd ever smoked weed with, you know. <laughs> so we had a high level of trust, you know, and love for each other. So, you know, for the audience, that's not my life now. It hasn't been for a while. But, <laughs> but when I was 17, it certainly was. So he said, yeah, so how do you think the black girls in the audience related to the band compared to the white boys? And I had never thought about that. Basically, through a line of questioning, very gentle questioning, not telling me what to do, how to do it, how to think, anything. Through a line of questioning, he made me see things differently to shift my perspective. And in that moment, I could see that by presenting the way I was presenting this music, that I was actually reinforcing the status quo. I mean, I wouldn't have framed it that way at the time, but I could see that that's what I was doing. And... We talked about it a little more, and I asked him for some books. And basically, he introduced me to anti-racist thought because I thought it was all about personal prejudice. I didn't realize that I had zero understanding of systemic racism, didn't know what it was. And so he introduced me to the concept, and that changed everything for me. And I've been trying to get deeper with that ever since. And I'll keep this real short. I could go on, on this subject for hours. Mm -hmm. But for me, you know, I think maybe 
a shift in the language right now would be helpful to white folks because I think when we hear things like white prejudice, you know, these terms that are important concepts to understand, they're also very frightening, I think, in a way, because what's behind that is a lot of times the feeling that we have these benefits in society that other people don't have, and now we have to give them up. And I don't think that's necessarily human nature to do that. But it's important that we understand the concept. But I think for me, what I found in looking at all this and the way it's played out in doing family music is that I felt an incredible amount of liberation hmm. through anti-racist thought and looking into what it means to be anti-racist in this time. So for me, it's liberating. And, you know, all the money in Brooklyn Heights couldn't get me to go back to the time before I understood this. Because it's made me comfortable in the world. Because before I got into this, I couldn't be comfortable in a situation where the majority of people in the room didn't look like me. So I got comfortable in the world, and I got comfortable in, in all settings. And I started to understand the whys of things and the history of things. And the more I understood it, as disturbing as it is, the happier I got. Because mm. I felt like I wasn't living a lie anymore. I was actually living in the world as it is. And I could see the potential for change for myself and also how I could, you know, be able to speak more clearly with other white folks about what this is, but not in a shaming way, just in a way of saying, this is what I learned and this is how it changed my life. And this is why, for me, it's a revolutionary way of adjusting my thinking. I, I, I love that so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. I love this conversation. Here by the pool. Yeah. Okay. The pool is for all the conversations. And this is, I think this is one of the most important conversations that two white folks making stuff for kids and families can be having right now. So yes, we will sit by the pool and we will discuss. And I love what your friend did in his conversation with you, that he asked you questions and got you thinking about things that you had not thought about before in a way that was generous and not an attack. I think that's so key. And I think for anyone listening who's maybe at the beginning of a journey with this stuff, what do you recommend a book? I mean, you mentioned, what was the title, The Kids in the Cafeteria? Yeah, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Beverly Daniel Tatum. There's one called Dismantling Racism by Joseph Barnt, which okay. is, you know, those two books for me are incredible. Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack mm -hmm. is an essay that's readily available online and um, the book that I see here next to the pool the new Jim Crow is great just so that you can get another sense of you know talk about a reality shift that book is that'll really shake anybody up so those things are good there's something called constructive white conversations that has been going for about three years here in Brooklyn which is a it's a gathering of white folks sitting around the dining room table talking about things that pertain to white folks in this case you know systemic racism and how it affects us and what we can do to shift out of it. The thing that never, ever worked for me was being upset and bitter and telling other white folks what to do and how to do it, you know, coming from this place of the moral high ground and, you know, like, I know what you should be doing or thinking. And that was a horrible failure when I tried that approach. It was a stage I went through, you know, but, but now it's just sharing experiences is where it's at. So I appreciate you giving me a minute to share my experience with you because... And I know we've had conversations around this stuff before, and I think it's just getting used to talking about it with each other, you know, because we're conditioned. The conditioning here in the U.S. of A. is deep, deep for white people, you know? Yeah. And so as we just get used to the idea that 
it's for our own benefit, for our own liberation, if for no other reason, it's crucial that we talk about this stuff. But there are so many other reasons to talk about it, too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all your words. Um, uh, I think, actually... Where do you go from there, <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> uh, well, no, actually, now we bring it back to the music, I think, because that is the thread here, is the mm. music. Okay, can you pass me that case right there? Oh, yeah. So... I'll try not to drop it in the water. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for observing the rules of the pool here. Okay, so... When you came to Sprout a couple of years ago, you had a mandolin with you. Yeah. And you taught me how to play a few chords on the mandolin. And I was I like, remember that. who is this guy again saying <laughs> this is the best day ever? What is a mandolin? I'm playing it now. Everything's changing. <laughs> and then I went a week later and I bought a mandolin. Uh, this mandolin right here. Um, I would say that I don't know too much more than the three chords that <laughs> you taught me. Um, so I don't I, either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm hoping then that one or both of us could then perhaps put those three chords to use yeah would you be okay doing a little music with us right here yeah of course before we go okay so just take a look at this i want to see your axe here yeah i mean i think it's beautiful i don't really know much about mandolins oh that's nice isn't that like a good looking craigslist mandolin yeah definitely that's great uh there was an incident we lost a string yesterday that yeah, happens so, but, but oh that's tuned. really cool it's yeah there. Maybe we do a song that we both know, and then we like can play around with improvising some verses for the fun of it. Sure. These folk songs kind of start in a place we all know, and then can drift away. Sure. knows a few chords on the mandolin i just feel like you're pretty proficient oh well thank you all right i'm gonna get my guitar okay great this is our band from this valley they say you are leaving we will miss your bright eyes and bright smile for they say you are taking the sunshine that has brightened our lives for a while. Come and sit by my side if you love me. Do not hasten to bid me adieu. For this river, the Red River Valley, and the cowboy who That's how it goes. All right. All right. Do you, do you guys know the song? Does anybody else want to sing? Okay. All together? Do you guys want to join in? And here we go. Come and sit by my side if you love me. Do not hasten to bid me adieu. But remember the Red River Valley and the cow. our toes in the waters and it's nice to have you here 
the chorus? <laughs> yeah, we go back to the chorus. I gotta have it. Come and sit by my side if you love me. I do. I really do. <laughs> I have to pretend for a minute that I'm the kind of person that can do that. You can do it. It's about a pool. A day at the pool with snacks. All right. Okay, what's your favorite snack? Potato chips. Okay. Come and crunch on some potato chips with me. Salty and sweet and vinegar too. A bag for me, a bag for my friend. We'll share a bag till the very end. Crunching on potato chips by the pool with you. Come and sit by my side if you love me. Do not hasten to bid me adieu But remember that Red River Valley And that cowboy who loved you so true You're good at this. No, 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 it's easy. You just start talking. I'm going to make you do it. You're not leaving that couch until you give it a shot. You got to give it a shot. We don't have to use it, but you got to give it a shot. All right, let me think. Give me some, let me give you some. Okay, uh. Okay, I got it. I okay, got yeah? It. Go ahead. I mean, I don't have it, but I think I have the. The bones? Well, I don't even know if I do, but I want to try. I want to try this. Okay. Well, I knew I'd be sitting here poolside. What I didn't know is what to wear. What you should wear. With my hair. Yes! Ready, everybody, loud and clear. Come, Come and sit by my side if you love me. Do not hasten to bid me adieu. But remember that Red River Valley and that cowboy who loves you so true. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Dude, you nice. did it! Oh, Great verse. That was nerve-wracking. I like your mandolin a lot. Thank you. Is it a good mandolin? Would you say? Is it yeah. or is it okay? Is it? It's definitely a good mandolin. Feels good. Yep. I should have made you improvise a '50s crooner love song, since that is your specialty. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. Thanks for uh, that pushing fun. through the challenge. Oh, no, man. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Okay, wait, just rapid fire questions before we go and then I'm free. Yeah. What was the last song you listened to? Like on your iTunes or in the car or when you woke up this morning? What's the last song that was in your ears? Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's a, I was listening to a Haitian record, a group called Shlu Shlu. Okay. Yeah, I, that's mostly what I listen to is Haitian music. I love that. Um, so that was what it was. Okay. Before we left the house today. Okay. What did you have for breakfast? Oatmeal and blueberries. That's very good. I As like always. that. 
Did you have a favorite color as a kid? Uh, green. Is that your favorite color now? Yes, changed? green and pink. Okay, very good. Uh, who should I invite to the kiddie pool next? Oh, just invite me back. This is really fun. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> I'll gosh. just come okay. every time. <laughs> Great, you are invited anytime. Oh wow! I, Sonia de los Santos would be a good guest. Awesome! I love that. I love her. Great. Where can the people go to buy your music and listen to your music and learn about your shows? They could go to danzanes.com, and then I'm on Facebook as Danzanes, Instagram, Twitter, all that jazz. All the stuff you do. All the stuff. All the stuff. Okay. Not every day, but I try. <laughs> cool. Dan, thank you so much for coming down here oh, Carly. To, to chat and hang and play. <laughs> this is great. I had such a good time. Thank you for inviting me. Great. That'll do it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carly. Should I go? <laughs> okay. I want to thank Dan Zanes for joining me in the kiddie pool which is actually just a bunch of pillows on the floor of my cozy slice of Brooklyn. It was a treat to make music with him and to put his improv skills to the test, and I'm grateful for the openness and generosity he showed during our conversation. I think we can all learn a lot from Dan Zanes. The show is written by me, produced and edited by Michal Richardson, and super special thanks to our creative consultant, Erica Ravner, and shout-out to Dubway Studios for the soundboard. If there's someone you want us to splash around with here at the kiddie pool, or if you have a kids' media obsession, past or present, that you want to share with us for a deep dive, find us on facebook.com slash thekiddiepool. Now excuse me while I hit the snack shack for a post-swim treat. Remember you're never fully dressed without a smile. Can I use your bathroom? Oh, yeah, of course. No, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just go in the pool like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> You're really um, latching onto I the know. pool. I'm really, I appreciate that. Yeah.